the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. You're looking at a somewhat longish passage, but I do want to read the entire passage, verses 17 through 32, in order to, um, to get the full context. And hopefully in your minds, I'll place you at this place where the disciples are brought in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. I'd like to read from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, and I'd like to ask Aaron Wells if you pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. He said, Go your way, stand and speak in the, to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, the Sanhedrin, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now at this point you may chuckle, as the Lord is really pulling one over on the Sanhedrin. And then the captain went along with his officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that your, the message of this life uh, will not be stopped uh, by human power. And yet we find ourselves in various ways uh, sorely oppressed by the powers of the world. Uh, we find your, the message of your gospel opposed at every turn. And we pray that as it is preached today, that the message of your word would be of great encouragement to us, uh, of, of effectual motivation uh, to carefully consider our lives and our doctrine before you, uh, to be bold in the proclamation of your great power shown in Jesus Christ in raising him from the dead. Um, and we ask that you would uh, 
give us joy uh, this day as it is your day, uh, that you would grant Chuck uh, discernment and clarity in his teaching uh, as he is uh, sitting in, in the seat of, of teaching over us. Uh, we pray this in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Most of you are, are well aware of my love of history, a history of, of really all eras, but I, I wanted to share one of the most fascinating things that I find in, in history and in studying history, and that is the history behind history. When we, when we study, especially when we're, we're taught in schools in our history textbooks, a history to us is just a series, a series of famous people. And, and we, we learn their names. Sometimes the teachers make us learn their dates, you know, and, and all that stuff. But we learn about Julius Caesar. You know, we learn about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. We learn about George Washington. We learn about famous men um, in our era, and I think as, as it should be, we're beginning also to learn about famous women. But what I also enjoy is to study those who made history, though they never became famous. And really, there are more of them than there are of famous men. There are men behind the scenes. They're kingmakers, or perhaps kingkeepers. Men who realize in their own life that their lives are safer if they didn't actually occupy the throne and wear the crown, but rather that they did their maneuverings behind the scene to make sure their man occupied the throne and wore the crown. And these are often far more fascinating people to study than those whose face is on the stamp, as it were. Just such a man is before us here in verse 17, though he is not named. We read the high priest rose up. And we're not told who the high priest was at this time, but we are told by men such as Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of this era, the era of the Second Temple, and we're told by others, including the writer, the gospel writer John, that the high priest probably refers to a man named Annas. Now, at this time, we are somewhere, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're in the 30s A.D., maybe 33, 34. Annas has not been high priest since A.D. 15. <coughs> he had served for, as high priest for 10 years. But then he was removed from office by the Roman powers. We know, of course, Jesus and his apostles were aware of Pontius Pilate. We know of the Herods, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, the various Herods who ruled under the Romans. We know of Tiberius, who was the emperor at this time. Perhaps one of the most influential and powerful men in Jerusalem at this time, though, was Annas. High priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. He was still called high priest almost 20 years later. That was the kind of power that he withheld. In fact, the high priest from A.D. 15 on through almost the destruction of Jerusalem were the sons of Annas and his son-in-law, whose name was Caiaphas. Now, you're, you're familiar with that name. Now, Caiaphas wasn't even high priest at this point. It, it was some other son of Annas. So whenever your Bible in the Gospels or in Acts mentions the high priest, chances are it was Annas, one of those powerful men who were behind the scenes for many, many years of his life, 
running things within Jerusalem and within the temple. He was a, he was a power broker that the Romans and the Herodians had to deal with because in the hands of the Sadducees was the power and the leadership of the Sanhedrin, the Council of Israel. But even powerful Annas couldn't do it all on his own. And as is the case so often in history, the most charismatic, the most influential, the most politically savvy ruler cannot rule without the people. You have to have the people behind you, especially if you're a Roman province that has been given remarkable flexibility, considering other Roman provinces of that time. The last thing you want is a riot. Because the Romans were this type of a ruling empire. They didn't much care what you did, as long as you did it peacefully. As long as it didn't interrupt trade or the payment of taxes. Once that happened, then they came in. And as Caiaphas says earlier on with regard to Jesus, they will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, all the power that we've accumulated will be lost because the people are in an uproar. It's okay that the high priest is in an uproar. But let's not get the people in an uproar. So rather than do things on his own, or Annas and his sons and son-in-law and the Sadducees in general have to call together the council, the Sanhedrin. Well, that brings in another group about which we read frequently, the Pharisees. See, they're part of the Sanhedrin. But that's not even enough. And we read here that they also call together the Senate. Now, that's one that we don't read about much with regard to Israel, that they had a Senate. We know that Rome had a Senate. We have a Senate. But so did Israel. Now, these, these are terms that we read about. And, and again, I want to kind of set the stage so we understand that the soil into which the early church was planted. It wasn't this monolithic, homogenous Jewish society where everybody thought and acted the same way. No, it was like any human society. It was full of divisions, factions, dissensions, political intrigue, and hatred. And into this, the church was planted. Not, not a really fertile environment for growing a new movement. And the Senate is actually not only the Sanhedrin, the, the assembly of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but it also brings together the elders of the tribes of Israel. So the Senate is really the most comprehensive governing body within the nation of Israel. This must be a pretty serious problem we're dealing with here. If we have to call together the most powerful man in Jerusalem, along with his associates, the Sadducees, let's pull in the Pharisees, and for good measure, let's gather all the elders too. This is just Peter and James and John. What's going on here? Well, what is happening here that the, the leadership of Israel is panicking? Well, it's called the gospel. And when it is preached in truth and in power, the kings of the world quake in fear. This is a paradigm shifter. Or to put it in the words of the Bible, this is that which turns the world upside down. And when it is filled with the Holy Spirit as it should always be. The rulers of this world are in an uproar. We read that in Psalm 2. We read it here in Acts 5. 
verse 17. The leaders of, the, of Jerusalem were in an uproar. Why? Because these Galilean fishermen were preaching in that name. That name that I forbid you to preach in, that name that I can't even mention, you shall not preach in it. Well, we live in an age where people are no longer allowed to pray in that name. Have you been at any events here in the South? Of course, there's always an invocation. All right? In the North, there's a toast. In the South, there's an invocation. I'm from the North. The invocation is, is even in a gathering that is ostensibly Christian, rarely does it mention the name Jesus. It might go so far as to say, in the name of the Lord. Usually it will simply use the name God. Some places it uses whatever higher being you look up to, or lower being, or whatever. So vague. But the name Jesus is offensive. We're told in Scripture that it's a stumbling block. Woe to the church when she stumbles over so here are these groups, and, and, and I was thinking as, in preparing for the message that, you know, we read our Bibles, and we hear the name, we read the name Sadducee, and Pharisee, and Sanhedrin, and sometimes we in the pulpit are guilty of assuming that everybody knows what we're talking about. So if you don't mind, I'm not going to make that assumption. And I'm going to introduce these different groups to you, somewhat of a who's who, in Second Temple Israel. And, and if you already know all of this, then forgive me, bear with those who do not. We're introduced at first in verse 17 with the Sadducees. Now this was the party of the priesthood that rose to power basically in the time of the Maccabees. Now that was a time when the Greeks ruled the Middle East after Alexander the Great had rampaged over all of the land and then died in a drunken brawl. The Jews suffered under a great deal of oppression from the Greeks, even the defiling of the temple. And one day, a Jewish priest was ordered to sacrifice a pig. And another priest in that town rose up and slew the priest who was about to sacrifice a pig, an abomination in Israel. That man's sons were later known as the Maccabees. And they defeated the Greeks and purified the temple. And they ruled as priest kings for many generations. Now the Sadducees were not directly descended from them. In fact, tradition holds that they are descended from Zadok. That they are in fact the Zadokim, which we anglicize into Sadducee. Zadok was a high priest under King David. In Ezekiel, for example, we read that the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to minister to me, to offer me the fat and the blood. And so it became a tradition within Israel that the descendants of Zadok would faithfully maintain the temple. And again, that tradition is that these are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were actually very conservative in their religion. And we might say they were even like us Protestants in that they rejected the oral law and maintained that only the written law had any authority in the governing of the nation and of Judaism. Now that sounds a lot like the Protestant complaint against the Roman Catholic 
use of tradition and oral law, oral tradition, as equally authoritative as scripture. So, so in a sense, we, we have something in common with the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed that all worship was to take place in the temple. Now, that was somewhat of a beneficial belief because they profited by all of the money that transacted within the temple. And they were, in fact, the party of the elite and of the wealthy in Israel. Most of the, the significant people of the land were either Sadducees or supported that party. But they are not like us in that they denied the reality of the spirit world, of angels, for example. They denied the resurrection and the afterlife. So in that sense, by the time of, of Jesus Christ and of the apostles, the Sadducees had absorbed a great deal of Greek philosophy into their worldview. And so they were somewhat Hellenistic compared to the Pharisees who maintained more of the Hebrew traditions of Jerusalem and of Judea. So not only do we have these religious differences, we have to remember that there's some ethnicity mixing in Israel at this time. And especially Greek and Hebrew. We're going to find that in the church in Acts chapter 6. When the Hellenistic and the Hebrew widows were having a bit of a spat. So this is the world in which the, the gospel was first preached. And the Sadducees, they maintained their, their hold on power through the temple, through the temple tax and the money, but also at the, at the pleasure of the Herodians, who were themselves kings of Judea at the pleasure of the Romans. So you kind of have these three groups over here on the far right. The Romans saying, okay, as long as you... Herodians and you Sadducees keep the peace. We will give you a great deal of autonomy within the temple, within the tax gathering system. You can get rich and you can be powerful as long as you do our will. Well, now that caused a great many of Jews to leave the temple. You've all heard of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, where we've found a, a lot of documents from, from the intertestamental period and from the Old Testament period that were written on scrolls and stored in clay jars in the desert, in the caves of Qumran. Well, those who stored them there were known as the Essenes. These were Jews who looked at the Sadducees and said, you have defiled the temple. And the temple is no longer a place to worship. So now, now think about that. The Essenes are saying at this very time that God is not to be worshipped in this temple. Do you think of anyone else who said that? Maybe Jesus? You know, what Jesus had to say at that time in his life, he was not the only one saying it. How he said it and what he meant by it was different. But it was very radical. Not only religiously, because the temple was the place where God had caused his name to dwell, but also politically, because the temple was the center of power for the Sadducees. But the Sadducees were a minority, while very wealthy, a very powerful minority, but still small enough that they could not afford to rule without another group known as the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a political party of priestly an aristocratic tendency as against the more religious and democratic Pharisees. Pharisees, that word comes from the name, the, the Greek word parash, 
They also come from the time of the Maccabees. They were essentially the Puritans of Israel. Now, now we know the Puritans because we kind of trace our heritage in the, the Baptist, Reformed Baptist movement from the Puritans in England who came across to the colonies about 300 years ago. You know, the Puritans. Well, the word Puritan was a derogatory name given to the people in England by the Elizabethans. They were too pure to associate with the rest of the people. Okay? But they were those who wanted to worship God in the purity of their religion, of their conscience. These were the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually did accept the oral law. The traditions that were held that they held to be handed down from Moses and Joshua and the elders of Israel all the way down to their generation. The rabbi Shammai was asked about the Torah and how many there were, and he said two. The written Torah and the oral Torah. That which was written and also that which has been spoken from the generation. So the rabbinic teaching was really the, the provenance of the Pharisees, the scribes, who were in fact Jewish lawyers because they studied the law. That's what they did. They transcribed it. They made notes of it. They made commentaries of it. They were by and large of the Pharisaic party. The Pharisees were considered to be the most righteous men. When Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven, his disciples said, who then can get in? These are the most righteous people we know. They obey the law in its minutiae. And in fact, they not only obey the law, they come up with other laws to obey so that they're nowhere near breaking the law. They tie the tenth of their mint and their dill and their cumin. In other words, they take the smallest little seeds of their herb garden and they divide out a tenth of it. That's how minute they were. And, and the people looked up to them as being the, the religious elites, not the, not the political or the economic elite, but the religious elite. And they envied them. So while the Sadducees were the party of power, of money, and of aristocracy, the Pharisees were the party of the people. The Pharisees have supreme influence among the people, wrote Josephus. The Herodians, the party of the king, and the Sadducees held the reins of government. So the government and the people. Well, the problem here is that the people are following after the teaching that is now being preached in the name of Jesus. So much so that, that when the Sanhedrin sends to arrest these men, they have to do it very peacefully. Now, I want to point that out because what we're dealing with here, and in, in much of Acts, we're dealing with a concept that the church has struggled with for 2,000 years. But especially in the last 200 years, and even more so in the United States of America, and that problem is civil disobedience. When the church is to obey the government and when it must not. But I want to point out that when these men, the disciples, the apostles were arrested, they did not resist. When the angel freed them, they didn't resist either. They went out. The next day when the guards came, they went Peacefully. Okay? Then there's something to be learned here about how a Christian lives in his society. How he bears witness 
As Peter says, we are witnesses, not only of the resurrection, but also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the redemptive purpose of God that the gospel be preached to every nation. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees recognize we have a problem here. They come together and in, in what is called the Sanhedrin, which is a combination of two Greek words that simply means to sit with. <laughs> okay, so they all sat together. This is the assembly where the religious elites, the Sanhedrin in the temple, the Pharisees with the law, come together in order, in attempt, to govern Judaism in the Second Temple era. The Sanhedrin was formally led by the Sadducees and the Sadducee and high priests, but practically ruled by the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the upper hand in the Sanhedrin, and it was in fact a Pharisee who will block here in this chapter a man by the name of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of great renown, great integrity, will actually block Annas and prevent him from being able to do what he wants to do with these troublemakers. So the Pharisees are very, very important. This is, as I said, this is the ground in which the seeds of the church are sown. This is the world in which they lived. It was full of political intrigue, dissent, factions, different religious opinions. In other words, not much different than the world in which we live. And that's one of the wonders of history. That we read about things that have happened hundreds or thousands of years ago, and we realize, you know what? Men haven't changed all that much. They're all sinners, and their sin seems to follow similar channels in every generation. We seem to think that we live in such an unusually troubled age. I'm sure Peter thought the same thing. Paul called it a, a dark and wicked generation. The presence of this darkness, he called it. Jesus called it this evil generation. So it was a rough time. And that's important to realize because all of the powers of the world were arrayed against this small, embryonic church. These 12 apostles, preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, had arrayed against them all of the forces that were possible against them in that world. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Romans would all align themselves against the church. In other words, the gates of Hades would not prevail. And the church would continue in spite of martyrdoms, in spite of persecutions, in spite of being scattered, in spite of divisions within and oppression without, it would grow until it would eventually cover the entire earth, just as Jesus had promised. And so they, they're before these men, these power brokers in Israel, and yet they're not the least bit afraid. And they're told that we, we commanded you, we gave you strict orders not to continue preaching in this name. That didn't faze them. If you remember, because it was only a chapter before, when, when the high priest and the Sanhedrin did in fact command Peter and John no longer to preach in this name, they didn't agree. They said, you be the judge, whether it is right to obey God or man, but for ourselves we cannot help but preach and teach what we have seen and heard. So they're not violating any oath that they made before this council. In fact, they had basically promised them 
that they would continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And there is a lesson there. But there are two lessons I want to bring out from this narrative concerning power. Because it's, it's true in the age of the apostles and it is true today. First of all, the limited power of government. Now, in our country, limited governmental power is kind of written into our constitution by our checks and balances with the different branches of government, by our series of elections every, every two years for Congress, every four years for the President, every six years for the Senate, rotated, so a third of the Senate is up every two years. You, you think our founding fathers were mathematicians, how they figured all of this out. But the idea was government is itself a necessary evil, and therefore it must be designed to check itself. And that, that's why we have three branches, the judicial, the legislative, the executive. That's why we have different types of elections. By the way, the Senate, up until 1913, was not elected by the people. It was elected by the states. That was not a good amendment, the 17th Amendment. It changed the fundamental structure of our limited power government. In fact, it's the only amendment to the Constitution that did alter the fundamental structure of our government. But limited power is not what the Bible talks about because republicanism and balance of powers and congresses and senates and Jews, they didn't know that. The power was Rome. The power broker was the proconsul from Rome. That's what power was. The power was Annas, who though he was no longer high priest, was still called such because everybody knew he's the one who pulled the strings. Limited power in the Bible means that while those who are in government exercise authority among men, over men, what Jesus said to Pilate is true of all human government. You would have no power unless it was granted to you from above. Limited power means that all human government is limited or it's power on loan from God. It is limited by the providence and the will of God. Paul says when he is speaking to the Greeks on Mars Hill, he says God has appointed every nation and their times and their boundaries. When we read the prophets of the Old Testament, we realize that it is God Almighty who, who raises up and tears down. He raises up the Chaldeans and then he destroys them by the Greeks. He raises up the Greeks and then here come the Romans. He raises up the Romans and here come the Visigoths. And generation after generation throughout history, we see that the, 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 most, the, the, the most majestic power man can accumulate never lasts. It never lasts. Because God has ordained that it should not last. So power is on loan. Man cannot keep in his prisons those whom God sets free. And that word prisons... And by that word, I mean their physical prisons, but also the prisons of their worldview, the prisons of their immorality, the prisons of their oppression, of their tyranny. We are told that those whom God sets free, those whom the Son sets free, the Son of God, are free indeed. And so what we have seen in the path of the gospel over the past 2,000 years as it has moved its way out from Jerusalem and around the Mediterranean and through Europe and then across the Atlantic, and especially with the Reformation 
and the return of the scriptures to the individual believer, what we have seen coming in the wake of the gospel is human liberty. And where the gospel has not gone, we still see oppression. And so the, the answer to oppression, the answer to tyranny, to slavery, has never been through human government, because that, which, that is what brings oppression. That's what James says in his letter. Are these not the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? The rich people of the world? The governments of the world? No, freedom comes from the Son of God, Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the gospel. That, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the beginning of a worldwide revolution of liberty starting here in Jerusalem in the midst of tyranny. This little handful of men who refused to kowtow, to bow down to those who would have them do what God, or not do what God has commanded them to do. And that is to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. So the first lesson is of the limited power of government, not by the different branches, but by God Almighty. That hasn't changed. Whatever government we have today is just as limited by the providence and will of God as the government that was in place when Peter was alive. But the second principle is the limited scope of that limited power. This is an essential feature to that whole idea of civil disobedience. We read in Romans chapter 13 that every authority that exists has been appointed by God. And therefore, Paul says, we are to submit to every authority. Because as he says, and I want to read that in particular, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. But listen to this. And please listen carefully, unless you're not American. Okay? Because if you're American, you need to hear this. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And he who resists the ordinance of God will receive condemnation upon himself. Now, I'm not going to do anything with that right now. But hear it. Because it is the word of God. But the scope of that power, though ordained by God, is itself limited. Human government cannot command or forbid contrary to God's Reveal will. Well, it can. It can command anything it wants to command. Because sadly, human government is not ruled. It does not rule itself by God's word. And there are many within the church today and have been throughout its history who, who would like human government to be ruled by the word of God. The sad reality is, is these are two different swords. The sword of the government and the sword of the word. And when they come together, it hasn't been pretty. It really hasn't. When the church has put in her hand the sword of civil government, there has almost always, and I, I would say almost because I haven't read every single history book out there, but I also have not read of an exception, there has been oppression and tyranny of believers by the church. Okay? But... Though government can command that which is contrary to the will of God, 
No believer is bound to obey that command. Now that is the heart and soul of civil disobedience. We may not, we must not, and really we cannot disobey God for any reason whatsoever. So the government commands that which God forbids. The government forbids that which God commands. The believer must disobey. To remind us what Peter did say in that earlier meeting with the Sanhedrin. He says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Civil disobedience is, is a touchy topic in the United States. Because we, how, how did we start? <laughs> Good, we read your history. <laughs> We're kind of a bunch of rebels. The, the American experiment of self-government is founded on the right of the people not only to govern themselves, but to overthrow any government that they consider to be oppressive. Now, the hope was that we would overthrow such governments through elections. And, and so far, that's worked okay. But if need be, that overthrow is advocated and is advocated by our founding fathers by the force of arms, by violence. Now, that's a hard circle to square with Scripture. It's a hard one to square with the book of Acts. But it's something that every believer in every generation, especially in the American church, has to deal with. And I want to consider that as we go through the book of Acts. How does the church live in the world in which she has been providentially placed by God? We were raised up for just such a time as this. We might think we would have done better living in a different age, but in reality we would not. This is our time because we are alive and God is sovereign. And so this is our country, this is our government, this is our church, and we have to figure out how do they all relate in a God-glorifying way, in a way that honors Scripture and obeys it. One writer says this, the apostles and early Christians acted on the principle that human government was forfeit in its claim to obedience when it required what God has plainly forbidden or forbidden what God has required. Now, that's a principle I think we can all agree, although there's, a, there's an adjective or an adverb there that I think we need to meditate upon. What God has plainly forbidden or required. Well, I think we all know from our own experience and from the history of the church that there are a lot of things that aren't as plain as we'd like them to be. We may see them plainly, but our brethren don't. And so within the church, there is almost never agreement as to what God has plainly commanded. And, and really, we're almost going to get to a, to a lowest common denominator here, but not a bad one. Because what the Sanhedrin was requiring of the apostles really is that timeless principle 
upon which civil disobedience rests. The Sanhedrin said to them, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. We told you, in no uncertain terms, plainly, not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and the apostles said, No can do. <laughs> You know, God has commanded us to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to do. There are a lot of other things that the church teaches, a lot of other things that the church says, but there is but one non-negotiable, and that is Jesus is Lord and Savior. That is the message of the church. And no government is to be obeyed that commands that we not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. This writer goes on to say, regarding the apostles in the early church, they refused to obey the mandate which required them to violate their consciences, but they endured quietly the penalties which the executors of the law enforced against them. Now that's another thing that we don't like in America. We like to be able to speak our mind, but we don't want to get in trouble for what we say. We would like to break the law, but we don't want to pay the penalty for breaking the law. Maybe you like to speed. Do you like paying a ticket? Do you ever say to the officer, I know none of you have ever had this experience. None of you have ever been pulled over. I have. None of you have been pulled over. Do you ever use the excuse, um, I wasn't going as fast as everyone else? You know when a policeman pulls you over and you roll down the window and he says, Sir, ma'am, you know why I'm pulling you over? You don't answer because you couldn't catch anyone else. You know, you're breaking the law, and you need to pay the penalty. The apostles show us that in their lives. They do not resist the executors of the law, but they don't obey them either. Throughout our history in the church, we've seen men like, like John Bunyan. He did not resist the years that he spent in prison. And the times during those years that he was released, he went right back to preaching the Word of God, which got him right back into prison, which got us no progress. Okay, he did not resist, though he did not obey. That, that, is, that is fundamental to Christian civil disobedience. First of all, to understand that upon which we must stand and cannot give way, but also understand that we cannot resist if the sword comes down, if we are oppressed, if we are arrested, if we are persecuted, because we will not yield upon the name of Jesus Christ, that we will not cease to preach in the name of Jesus Christ and teach the name of Jesus Christ as the only path to salvation and God, then we must suffer. Now, should God desire us not to suffer, he'll send an angel to open the prison. Right? He can still do that. But I personally cannot see where civil disobedience in the Christian context can ever take on a violent aspect. Peter responds to the Sanhedrin. Now, have, have you ever been before a judge have you ever been before a group of people in whose hands your fate was held? Your life? Probably not. I hope not. 
But even going before a judge can be a very intimidating experience, can it not? And you're supposed to say, Your Honor. You know, you're supposed to act in a certain way. Peter was merely an unlettered man, a fisherman from Galilee, and he is now standing, as Luther would do, at the Diet of Worms before the emperor and all of the gathered nobility of Europe. Peter is standing not only in front of the Sanhedrin, but the Senate, all of the assembled elders, including his own tribe. He was probably a little bit scared. But Jesus said to them, don't fear when you are brought before kings and governments and rulers. And don't think ahead of time what you will say. Because at that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. And listen to what Peter was given. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a tree. And he is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand. You all think you have power. You all think you have authority. You think you hold my fate in your hands. But God has exalted Jesus Christ to his right hand as Prince and Savior. As King to rule and Redeemer to save. You have no power. You have the power to kill my body. He has the power to cast you into hell. Who shall we fear? If God is for us, who could be against us? Yeah, this is the message of Christian disobedience. When we are brought before ruling powers because of the gospel, this is the voice of the church. God has exalted Jesus Christ to his right hand to be both prince and savior. This is the word of the church to the world. There is no other word that gives life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have entrusted to the church. And we pray that we might be faithful in handling that word. We do thank you, Father, for the, the season of peace that you have given us, even in our country, that allows us to gather without molestation, without persecution, that we might still proclaim the name of Jesus Christ from the pulpit. But, Father, we know that, that these seasons do not last. At least in history, they have not lasted. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us from your word our role in civil disobedience and give us the courage and the strength to yield and to obey when you would have us obey, to resist and to suffer when we must. Father, we pray that you would unite your people, that you would draw our hearts together even as, as we take communion today, that throughout this land and throughout the world, our hearts might be knitted together with our brethren, many of whom are suffering oppression, many of whom are suffering persecution. We pray, Father, that you would give us all the strength and the courage never to yield, to preach the name of Jesus Christ as Prince and Savior. All glory and honor to him alone. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.